This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Good morning to you, Jan. How are you? David. Look, two really big books today. Yes, I've got Geraldine Brooks and you've got... I've got the Age Book of the Year fiction writer. Well, we better get started. So here's Geraldine Brooks and her book, Horse. Great horses can become synonymous with a culture, an age and even a nation. Australia had Farlap, America had the stallion Lexington, and Geraldine Brooks has this horse serving almost as an equine equerry to the developing nation of America in her latest work, Horse. So Geraldine, welcome back to 3CR. Well, it's wonderful to be back and it's great to be back in Australia as well after my COVID exile. There are several storylines in this tale and all of them, in their own way, converge on Lexington. There's Jarrett, who's our central focus, Theo and Scott, who bring in a link to the world of art, and Jess, who works in the field of osteology. So let's tease some of these out a bit. Jarrett and Lexington, or Darley as he was first known, were very close. They have a very special bond, those two. Well, that's right, because I was attracted to this this subject by my interest in horses, and I thought I was just going to be writing a very singular story about a famous racehorse in the mid-19th century and what happened to that horse during the Civil War and after it. And then I realised that I was stepping into a rather little-known aspect of the history of enslavement. The thoroughbred industry in the 19th century rested almost entirely on the skills and expertise of black horsemen, many of whom were enslaved people. And so I couldn't leave out their contribution. And uh, I know that the person who has the most intimate bond with a horse It's the person that's feeding the horse and caring for the horse every single day and brushing the horse and spending time in the stable with the horse. So I found that the name of of Lexington's black groom was Jarrett. Uh, His portrait exists somewhere with Lexington. And so I had to make up what it might have been like to be that person. But there's also a parallel, which is not overt, between Lexington and Jarrett in as much as Lexington was traded, sold, used for profit. Is this a parallel with slavery? Well, unfortunately, yes. You know, that is the evil of this barbaric system that people also were property. And maybe they were even valuable property, as as Lexington the Stallion was valuable property, these expert horsemen too. And I learned that it did give them a little bit more agency about their lives because they were so highly skilled and so valued to these uh, white uh, plantation owners who got so much of their wealth and prestige from their racehorses. They had some privileges that others didn't have, like being able to amass property in their own name, which often led to eventually these men being able to buy their own freedom. But there's an interesting thing here in that Lexington became integral to 
the racing culture in America into the psyche almost of America, much he, the same he, way as slavery has. Well, Lexington was a celebrity racehorse on a massive scale. He was famous in the North and the South. Um, presidents came to watch him run. Uh, General Custer made a pilgrimage to the farm where he uh, was a stud sire just to see this horse that was supposed to be the most perfect horse that had ever lived. So he was a celebrity. Slavery was tearing the country apart at that time. This was, you know, this was something that was integral to the economy of the North and the South. But there was, you know, the abolitionist movement, the emancipationist movement, and ultimately a war over it. There's also a whole world of art that was generated around the horse industry in that day. And this brings us to Theo and Scott. Would you like to expand on who Scott was first and then Theo's role there? Yes, well, when I uh, I first heard about this horse because his skeleton was in the Smithsonian and then it was moved to a to be the centerpiece of an exhibition on the history of the thoroughbred at another museum. But I was really interested in the science around the bones and what the bones could tell us. And so I went to the Smithsonian to research that aspect of the story. And while I was there, they said, you know, we have a portrait of the horse painted in his own lifetime. Would you like to see it? And I went down to the study center where they keep paintings that aren't on display and was shown this portrait of Lexington in his prime by a painter called Thomas Scott. And it turned out that Thomas Scott painted the horse many times during his long life. And Thomas Scott himself was a very interesting guy. He had started out to be a doctor but couldn't afford medical school and loved the horse racing business, so he was a racing reporter as well as being a painter. And during the Civil War, he uh, volunteered for a union unit uh, as their medic. So he's an important character in my book. And Theo actually perhaps did what you did in terms of research Scott and find uh, more about uh, Scott for articles and for his own PhD thesis. Yeah, so Theo's a young art historian doing his PhD at Georgetown University. He's the son of two diplomats and his mother is Nigerian and his father is black American. And he's lived most of his life outside of the States. And he becomes intrigued by the depictions of the black horsemen in these paintings. And they're very extraordinary portraits because there aren't that many detailed depictions of enslaved people. And these black horsemen, uh, the trainers and the jockeys and the grooms, often are, are depicted in these paintings with great agency and dignity and individuality. So that intrigues him. But also, Theo has a relationship with Jess, who's an osteologist, and she and Theo have a relationship. So they're drawn together uh, by their mutual interest in the history of this horse. He, the art side, and she, the scientific side. She manages the osteoprep lab at the Smithsonian, which is a real place, and I visited it, and it's quite extraordinary. It's where the bones of every species you can think of, every vertebrate, are prepared for study by scientists, both now and in the future. 
And so it's Jess's job to receive all kinds of extraordinary dead critters from all over the world. And the day I was at the lab, they had just got a shipment of little passerines, which is a bird from, uh, from Afghanistan. But here's the interesting thing. The encounter between Jess and Theo, the initial encounter, is laced with a sort of legacy where she suspects him of stealing her bike. And it's a sort of this attitude that has carried on based on slavery in some ways and the attitudes that still remain today. Well, I knew that I couldn't leave that behind in the 19th century as though it was something that's entirely over and done with because it's not. And while I was writing this book, there were reverberations almost every single day in the news where you'd hear of um, Ahmed Aubrey being shot while he was jogging or the, the murder of George Floyd under the knee of a white police officer and so many other cases. And I just realized that it would be irresponsible to treat the story of race in America as if it was something we don't need to worry our heads about anymore because we certainly do. And, you know, we're all um, learning, I think, a lot about our own position as privileged white people in, in these societies that have been built on plundered labour. So my Australian scientist is, um, she blunders and she makes mistakes and she has all kinds of unexamined prejudices. And I think anybody who's about my age probably, you know, if you think you don't, you haven't looked hard enough inside yourself. And that's interesting about Jess. She is Australian, and yet she still has a sort of unconscious prejudice, but does, in fact, establish a relationship with Theo. Well, yeah, I mean, we're not exactly a great bastion of progressive anti-racism in this country until, you know, <laughs> uh, we're starting to come to grips with our own history here. So, yeah, racism doesn't have borders. Now, the other fascinating thing for me was the attention to detail that you have put into this work, the language especially. I was first intrigued by Mars until I realised what that was. That's a shortening of master. Um, another one that intrigued me, syllabub. Oh, that's, that's a pudding. You can still find that on menus occasionally. But... <laughs> In order to make this work authentic and get that period detail, and you've done this in, in other works of, of yours as well, finding the right word, finding the right language that would be used in that day is very important. It's very important to me because it's crucial to what I'm trying to do to get the scaffolding right so that you believe me and that nothing that I write in that period is going to jar the reader and make them say, no, that's not right. How could the train have stopped there? There was no railway there. You know, I have to get the detail correct. And the language is very important because I think nothing brings you out of the period feel of a novel than the wrong word in the wrong place. So I go to a lot of trouble to find out what vocabulary would have been in use in the period I'm writing in. And also the detail about horse flesh or that whole equine industry, the inflammation or heat in the limbs and the nature of horses. 
that was why this subject particularly appealed to me because my midlife crisis took the form of developing a complete passion for horses and horse riding and then acquiring a horse of my own and just being so interested in everything about horses that uh, I just was spending so much time thinking about my horse that I wasn't getting too much writing done. So this book was a good way of bringing my interest and my day job into alignment. And you've also already alluded to the Smithsonian, but the detail about the smells and what that actually involves to strip the flesh off the bones of animals, it can be off-putting a little. Well, not to me. I love getting into the nitty-gritty of weird jobs and being the osteoprep lab manager is a very strange job because for all the scientific advances and for all the fancy equipment they have in that lab, they still rely on bugs to clean the bones because domestic beetles can take the flesh off the bone and leave them pristine without destroying any tissue or any scientifically valuable information. So there's a great big bug room and it's like a gigantic walk-in fridge except when you walk in it's hot and humid inside because that's what the bugs like. And that's where they put the carcasses and the bugs just go at them like a football team at a buffet. And the other intriguing thing is how all of these stories interlace and the involvement of the link to history, because you even make reference to Jackson Pollock and the art industry and how that connects as well. It shows how internecine all of these connections are. Well, that was the big surprise to me as I was researching the book. I did not expect it to take me in the direction of Jackson Pollock, but yet he has a link to this horse. Well, the listener would be interested to know that the title horse doesn't quite encompass all of the strands that Geraldine has managed to explore here, art history, um, the osteology and all of the work that goes into a museum, as well as a personal history of the um, attendance to these horses in their day who were often black and who often had more influence than the owners. So as I said, the title of the book is called Horse. The author is Geraldine Brooks, and it's a hashtag release. So Geraldine, thank you very much for talking with me today. Well, uh-huh. it's lovely to be with you again, and thank you for having me back. Thanks, David. And now it's time for my author. I often get books written about dysfunctional families, but this one is a bit different. There's three generations and they all question whether they fit not only in a family, but into a society. The book is In Moonland and the author is Miles Allenson. Welcome, Miles. G'day, Jan. Thanks for having me. Your book starts with Joe. He's a new father, which makes him wonder about his own father, So maybe we'll just hear a little bit from page eight. He hated authority. He swore at the television every time a politician opened their mouth to speak. He had strong hands and tattoos of skulls on his arms. He liked to gamble and to drink and to win against the odds, even if it meant cheating. And on more than one occasion, I'd seen him threaten to smash someone's face in with a hammer. And if you were to ask me what sort of father he had been, I would say that he was a good one that he'd loved us, 
though I also know that I was terrified of him, that he had a rage we all feared, and that he was a troubled person with a loneliness that could not be cured. So what happened to Joe's father, Vincent? Joe's father, Vincent, drove his car into a, into a tram stop, one of those yellow um, kind of dividers that used to be used, especially along St Kilda Road, and flipped the car and died. So there was a question about whether that was deliberate or whether that was an accident, and that, that's sort of not quite resolved throughout the book. But. So it's 20 years after, and Joe decides to find out what sort of person his father had been. So the obvious person is to ask his mother, but he didn't really learn much from his mother about his father, did he? No, it's true. His mother's a little bit vague when it comes to um, that question. She's a bit vague about a, a few things. It's sort of as if she can't think about it herself in some ways. Yeah. So, But she sort of says, well, go and ask his friends. Joe has memories of some of his dad's mates. Watching the boxing on TV with Dennis and Dennis tells him that he met Vincent through the girlfriend Astra. And when Joe contacts her, she said the last time she saw Vincent, he was drinking and driving fast and had a lot of guns. He had a sort of death wish. And she asks Joe, what did he need to protect himself from? Well, uh, Joe couldn't answer that. And then Charlie, after meeting him and many emails later, Charlie says, I've decided I want no further contact with you. So all of these, his father's mates aren't very forthcoming about him either. No, that's true. Yeah, there seems to be a few secrets, I guess. And maybe that's true of of lots of different relationships. Maybe lots of people don't actually want to go digging around in the past. Maybe there are good reasons for that to to want to steer clear of some of the kind of painfulness of the of the past. Now Joe's got a photo of his dad in an ashram in India. And Joe actually remembers one of Vincent's mates from the ashram, Abby, who when he was around the family, it was it was like a holiday atmosphere. But Abby disappeared straight after Vincent's funeral. When Joe contacts him, what does Abby want to tell Joe about his father? Uh, not very much. No. <laughs> no, not very much. Abby says he's, he'd prefer not to, to go back there and talk about that. Mm. Um, so he sort of is left hanging there, yeah. Yeah. Joe also finds out that Abby is his godfather and his godmother is Rainy, who lives in San Francisco. They all met at the ashram. This brings us to the surprise of part two in the book. Who's telling the story here? Uh, part two is narrated, no one, no one clear, but it's told in the, um, in the third person um, and in the present tense. It's a, kind of quite a clear shift from the first, first part of the book, which was told in the first person. And so it's, it's, a, it's a close uh, third person perspective from, from Vincent's perspective, um, which is yeah, Joe's father. Now, I love the way that Vincent chose to get to India through the Dice Man. Now, hopefully our, our, our listeners know about that book, but I thought you'd be too young to know about that book. Yeah, I, well, I'm too young to have, to have known it's, it's true, I guess, infamy. But I, I remember it and I work in a bookshop myself and uh, I also know that my, my dad did try and live by the, the Dice book for a little while. No. Oh, my goodness. So he numbered countries to the dice 
through the six, and that's how we ended up in India and at this ashram. Fascinating. By the end of part two, we find out what had unsettled Vincent. Miles Allenson, were ashrams really this wild? Uh, I think this one was. Uh, yeah, this this one definitely was. Um, I, I don't. I can't speak for too many others, but uh, the the Rajneesh ashram in in Pune in India in the late seventies was a pretty a pretty wild place. A kind of mystery. A kind of mystery school. Actually, people talked about it as. Then we jump to part three of the book. And by this time, I'm thinking, where am I going to go to now? Joe, like his father, makes a very rash decision, which will affect his life too. So what does Joe decide to do? Joe decides to leave his family for a couple months and go to India to interview or to, to sort of track down Abby, who has, who has gone back there himself. And so he, he assumes that this will be just a, just a short trip, you know, relatively short, and he doesn't realise how long he's going to stay there for. No. When Abby sees him, he sort of welcomes him and notices, and this is a quote from the book, that Joe smiles the way Vince used to smile, but sadder. The outcome of this has consequences. So then part four, and this is Joe's daughter, Sylvie, telling the story. This is in a very different world where technology is all around us and constantly checking on you, as is the police voice and face voice identity checks. Let's have a listen to how you imagine our future to be, please, Miles Allenson, from page 203. Standing beside the empty swimming pool, she spoke to her watch. She'd been offline almost 12 hours. Much more than that would raise alarms. The screen shimmered open and she approved Connect. 185 messages, 57 fresh videos, 31 calls. Harlow, Frida, her mum, the office, both bar jobs, the government loans office. Her skin suit required updating. Her credit rating had dropped three points. Also new emergency procedures and a bunch of automated government messages requesting her to verify her identity because she'd been offline for more than eight hours. The accumulated messages disgorged their tiny vibrations through her. Twelve hours worth. A rush. She sifted for Harlow. Yeah. Well, Harlow, she's been living with in Sydney in an adults-only community. Now, between Harlow and, well, herself, she's got a life-changing decision to make. And I don't know whether we want to go into that or not, but this is causing her to drive down from Sydney to Melbourne. And on the way... She drops into her father, Joe. So what's, what's he working as now? So Joe's running a kind of a caravan park, I suppose, for want of a better term, but it's also a, a kind of commune of its own out in rural Victoria for people who can't afford to live anywhere else, basically. Old people who don't have any pension and people whose families can't afford to look after them. So it's a, yeah, it's a, a kind of retirement village, a sort of DIY retirement village. It reads like with a, a few of the, the tablets they're taking and a few of the antics they get up to, like a, an ashram for the elderly. <laughs> and, Sylvia, yes. and Sylvia is surprised at what the elderly get up to. So each generation has experienced living in cocooned societies. 
Before Vincent entered the ashram, he had to write in a letter. And in that, he asked, who will show me how to love and live? So, Miles, is this what you're questioning here? Do people willingly give up their individualism in the hope of cloistering themselves and that'll make them happier? I don't have any, any ideas about what people should be doing, but I think there are lots of these characters are, yeah, I guess experimenting with what a family is in a way, like what, what is the best way to arrange your, you know, your life and the, and the people that you love. And there are lots of different ways to go about uh, doing that and not all of them none of them are perfect they all have their their drawbacks so uh, that was a question that I was sort of interested in but only sort of subconsciously I didn't even realize that that was kind of a fundamental aspect of the book until my editor pointed it out quite late in the game and I was like oh that's right actually it is very much about you know that question of of how we arrange kind of social units Mm. Now, there's a few references to the moon in the book too, landing on the moon where man had gone all that way just to touch it, to the future of the moon with Chinese mining it. But what's the relevance of the title in Moonland? I'd, li- <laughs> I'd like to leave that to the, to the audience a, a little bit, to the reader. I, I had the title before I wrote the book, basically. I, I like to sort of start with the title and then work my way towards it. There's a sort of story that Claude Lévy-Strauss talks about where he says that watching the moon landing was, we're, we're sort of reminded that here on Earth, you know, that this is a, both a prison and a paradise and that, that the moon landing was the thing that sort of brought that home to us most clearly. I wanted this idea in one way for the moon to sort of represent this thing that we're, we're sort of grasping for, but we can never hold it for long, you know, all we can sort of do is touch it. But also it also reminds us, I guess, as well, of the fact that we're on a planet hurtling through space, you know, that we're in a larger universe. And that's sort of partly what the what the kind of spiritual kind of questing is in for lots of these characters is to is to somehow come to terms with the fact that we exist in the universe in the you know in the mystery of the universe well you mentioned that you know it's it's about people trying to find out where they fit in into a society and also a family and you have a lot of your characters commenting about parenting joe quotes Parents are only there to be memories for their children. And then his wife, Sarah, thinks Joe is going through a midlife crisis, spending a lot of time trying to find his dead father while he was living with two real people. And then there's Astra, who looks at the different ways parents love children and children love parents. That's a beautiful piece. You want to read it from page 72? Parents' love for a child, you probably know this yourself. It's pretty bottomless. It goes down into the guts of the world. But a child's love for a parent is different. It goes up. It's more ethereal. It's not quite present on the earth. Three generations are looking for inspiration and guidance to find out how to love and live. From the Indian ashram in the 70s to closed societies of the future, the outcomes for these three generations lead to very different consequences. Miles Allison looks into the past and future in his novel In Moonland. Thank you very much, Miles. Thanks, Jan. Thanks a lot. Well, well that's it. Indeed, it is. Two very full interviews, very powerful mm-hmm. interviews. Absolutely. And we'll have some more interviews next week, David. Well, that's generally what we do, Jan. 
You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.